This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. And today, Helen Rollins. We've got Helen back. Oh, yeah. How's it going? (laughs) I'm so glad she's back. Today, we're doing Leave Her to Heaven. I'll kick us off, and then I get to give it to Helen again, just like we used to. (laughs) All right. Leave Her to Heaven came out in 1945. A novelist meets a woman on a train. She tells him that he looks like her father. Needless to say, they hit it off. The woman is engaged, but her father has recently died. She was very close with him. To avoid having to come to terms with the loss, she latches onto this man who looks so very much like him. She breaks off her engagement and immediately pushes the novelist to marry her. Against his better judgment, he complies. The thing is, the novelist only looks like her father. In truth, he has a very different life. The novelist has a disabled younger brother. While the novelist writes his novels, he leaves his new wife to look after his brother. This is not what she bargained for. Initially, she pretends to be happy with the situation. But when it becomes clear that the novelist is going to bring his brother everywhere, even on a romantic getaway to a lake house, she starts to lose it. Over the course of their time at the lake, she looks for every possible way to get rid of the disabled brother. Can he be sent to a faraway school? Can her own family look after him? But the disabled brother doesn't want to go anywhere without the novelist. What can she do? If she tells her husband she can't stand his brother, that won't go over very well. And soon he starts bringing even more people over to the lake house without consulting her. He even invites her own mother over without breathing a word to her about it. If she gets angry or upset about any of this, he calls her a shrew. He says she's being rude. The disabled brother has been hard at work trying to regain the use of his limbs. He's been swimming all over the lake, pushing himself very hard. He wants to prove to his older brother that he's stronger than he looks. The wife has been pretending to like him so he happily goes out onto the water with her. She encourages him to push himself too hard. He begins to struggle, and she decides not to help him. Instead, she lets him drown. The novelist is absolutely gutted by the loss of his brother. He's so glum that he's no fun at all. To boost his spirits, the wife decides to give him a child. She gets pregnant, but as the pregnancy advances, She finds it uncomfortable and inconvenient. She didn't really want this child. She's only doing it for him. One day, while she's not looking, he guts one of her father's old rooms and converts it into a playroom for the baby. He assumes she'll appreciate the gesture, but for her, this is a desecration of her father's space. She decides this child is more trouble than it's worth. But when she admits to her cousin that she doesn't even want it, her cousin scolds her for being horrible. Since she cannot accomplish anything through a direct conversation, she once again resorts to intrigue. This time, she falls down the stairs, pretending it was an accident. The fall kills the baby and frees her from the pregnancy. After the death of his son, the novelist becomes increasingly disinterested in his wife, instead preferring the company of her cousin. On some level, he suspects her of foul play. Eventually, he gets her to admit it to him. He announces he's leaving her. She's heartbroken and begs him to stay. But once again, she cannot solve her problems with a direct conversation, and so she resorts to intrigue. She poisons herself, but stages it to make it look as if her cousin murdered her. She even writes a letter to an old flame, who is now a district attorney, hoping to use him to have her cousin incarcerated from beyond the grave. At this point, the film awkwardly pivots into a courtroom drama. The cousin is eventually acquitted, but the novelist is sent to prison for two years for failing to inform the authorities of his wife's crimes at an earlier stage. At the end of the film, he returns home from prison, embracing his wife's cousin. A few things are obvious. Rushing into marriage with a man... To paper over the loss of one's father isn't very wise. Indeed, on the train, the wife admits that she doesn't even like the novelist's work. 
If she doesn't like his work, the fact that he bears the visage of her father is a pretty thin basis for a relationship. But no one tries to stop her from making this mistake. Everyone stands by and lets it happen. Even the novelist is an accomplice in her mistake because he consents to marry her in these absurd circumstances. Once she's married to the novelist, she is effectively imprisoned within a life that bears no resemblance whatsoever to the life she envisioned when she made the decision to marry him. This allows her to go on imagining that if she could get her husband to herself for just a little while, she might yet realize her fantasy of being married to a younger version of her father. If she had only been permitted to spend a couple weeks alone with him, she would have realized the absurdity of this project. But he never grants her this alone time, so the fantasy persists. Eventually, it drives her to allow the brother to die. Then, just as she tried to paper over the loss of her father by marrying this man, she invites him to paper over the loss of his brother by giving him a son. A child will, in some important senses, play the same role as the brother. She will end up caring for the child while he writes, just as she cared for the brother while he wrote. He will still be inaccessible to her most of the time, and her fantasy will remain unfulfilled. Ultimately, she kills her child in a desperate bid to get her father back, but nothing will bring him back, not even the fulfillment of her fantasy. I find the wife a remarkably sympathetic character, but I do not think this is the way the film wants us to feel about her. From its point of view, the wife is narcissistic and self-centered. She refuses to take up the role of wife and mother because she wants to go on being a daughter. She is so desperate to go on being a daughter that she has conflated being a daughter with being a wife. At multiple points, the film suggests she has corrupted both roles, that there is something deeply perverse about her, and not just in the Lacanian sense. But you know, my dad is dead. And when you love your dad and he dies, that's not great. People don't do well in these situations. Nobody helped this woman make sense of her father's death. Nobody intervened when it was clear she was making an enormous, life-changing mistake. Nobody listened to her when she made it clear she was unhappy. I'm not saying it was okay for her to act out in the ways that she did, but you can understand how these things happened. There were causes and conditions. Maybe if in the 1940s people talked about these things more openly, this mess could have been avoided. There's no economic angle to the film. Everybody's rich, which means no one can explain their behavior in terms of material necessity. When the wife says to the novelist that she wants to take care of him and his brother, she says that not because she has to, but because it is what she wants to want to do. When it becomes clear that she isn't able to want what she wants to want, he has the resources to change things. He just doesn't. Now, I also considered a political interpretation of this film that's a little out there. It's a very modernist reading, and I don't necessarily like it, but it stood out to me as a possibility, so I'll share it with you and let you decide what to make of it. Suppose the wife's father is the ancient regime. Eventually, the ancient regime has to die. This being a very modernist reading, it is only natural that eventually the subjects grow beyond it. But when the ancient regime dies, they are suddenly thrust into a condition of freedom, this freedom is terrifying. It creates chaos and disorder. So, to bring an end to it, they seek out a new master who reminds them of their old master. The novelist's husband, then, is Bonaparte. But Bonaparte is a poor imitation of a bourbon, in much the same way that this husband is a poor imitation of the father. Nonetheless, the subject holds on tight to the fantasy, insisting that if only certain impediments were removed, the new master will not merely restore order, but create a paradise on earth. So there is an insistence that the impediments be identified and violently cut out. But no matter how much blood Bonaparte sheds, the innocence of the ancient regime cannot be restored. Without that innocence, nothing the new regime achieves can feel truly satisfying. And so whatever is achieved under the new regime, it feels like less than what was achieved in the past. On this reading, the wife is the quintessential reactionary Bonapartist, and since this film is an American film and it came out in 1945, perhaps the wife is the Nazi, the one who turns to Hitler to paper over the loss of the Kaiser. She is to be condemned for failing to embrace her freedom, the freedom delivered by the death of her father, by the fall of the Kaiserreich. She has been offered the fruit of modernity and turned from it. 
Now, if that's what's going on, what does it say that I find her sympathetic? Does that mean I'm sympathetic to the reactionary? If so, does my sympathy implicate me? I might reply by insisting this analogy is strained. In France and Germany, political economy had a lot to do with support for Napoleon and Hitler. It was not simply a failure on the part of the French or the Germans to be authentic or to embrace modernity. But in this film, there is no class element. This means that the wife in the film cannot excuse her behavior by appeal to her class position. She is not obsessed with the restoration of the father because of poverty or lack of education or long-term unemployment. And yet, is her inability to move on from her father purely a failure to be authentic, to accept adulthood and the freedom and independence that come with it? No, I think there is something reasonable about being unreasonable when your father dies. Everyone in this film expects this woman to be reasonable about his death. They expect this so much that they don't even interfere when she makes a grave mistake out of grief. Her family expects her to be a modern subject who can take loss without descending into madness. But in the face of death, madness is the ordinary response. It is the modernist who is being unreasonable by insisting that everyone ought to be reasonable in situations like this. That doesn't mean that the wife's actions should be defended or celebrated, but someone should have seen them coming and made tactful interventions at earlier stages to prevent this outcome. It is the lack of paternalism that led to the reaction, an unwillingness to provide guidance that leads us to seek it in places we shouldn't. Or, as Plato puts it in The Republic, excessive action in one direction usually sets up a great reaction in the opposite direction. This happens in seasons, in plants, in bodies, and particularly in constitutions. For extreme freedom probably cannot lead to anything but extreme slavery, whether in a private individual or in a city. Anyway, that's what I think. Let's hear what Helen has to say. Well, I don't know if I can follow that up with anything very good, Benjamin. You're very comprehensive and also very interesting in taking it in loads of different directions. I mean, I guess um, picking up on the reactionary utopian, though you kind of addressed things interestingly there in terms of material conditions when this happens politically and maybe like uh, a more personal um phenomenological like psychoanalytic symptom um but there is a reactionary in all of us uh, based upon the disappointment the necessary fundamental disappointment of um lack experienced as loss um so that we that we must go through to to enter into adulthood and interestingly you know you you, you touched upon um perversion and narcissism like this character does have sort of like a borderline or perverse kind of quality to her um but yeah, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm going to just address like some of that attachment to fantasy and utopianism as it manifests in the psychic structure, potentially not going to diagnose this lady, but of what goes on in this film. Um, interestingly, like it's, uh, it, it mixes genres in an interesting way. Um, so you have the sort of melodrama mixed with a neo-noir. Interestingly, it's, it might have been like the first neo-noir filmed in Technicolor. Neo-noirs were more of a sort of like edgy genre film at the time and were filmed more cheaply in black and white. So maybe this was a sort of like the A24 version of 1945 version of a sort of like higher budget genre film. Um, but it does something interesting with with genre mixing kind of, uh, yeah, as you say, there's a courtroom drama at the end and you have sort of this new noir thriller in the middle and it sort of starts off as a sort of more sort of like a romantic melodrama at the beginning or it appears to. And it really reminded me of the um, structure of something like Killers of the Flower Moon, where uh, the viewer is led to believe that a genre, uh, a certain genre um, is taking place when you come in with certain genre expectations and not in terms of the re final reveal of the film. Um, sometimes genre is used to, like uh, the film Pig that we talked about, um, to bring in um, the uh, audience subject Ivory to invest in um, the pursuit of a goal or an object in a certain way, only to undercut it potentially at the reveal stage. But this sort of leads the viewer into um, watching the film in a certain way that's sort of gradually undermined and changed as you go along. And as with um, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, this le leads to, and you talked about this a little bit, Benjamin, like a, a, an investment in the character or a sympathy because you read her as a romantic figure at the beginning. And maybe this aligns our subjectivity a little bit with... Um, the um, the husband, although potentially as well, it is like truly a third person narrative position. So instead of um, it being kind of 
clear who the protagonist is immediately and how they are um, acting and what their intentions are from from the off, which gets you to relate maybe more closely to the goody or the baddie, quote unquote, in a narrative structure. This sort of opens it up in a more ambivalent way to start off with. So maybe it was felt that um, this kind of like crazy behavior was too off-putting to the audience and they needed to sort of like invest in it uh, in a certain way. But it is also an adaptation of a novel. So maybe this was sort of a novelesque approach as well. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about, yeah, this utopian relationship to desire. Obviously, we've talked about this a million times on the lag. Uh, probably me in particular, but the way humans relate to fantasy um, is uh, a toxic and beautiful thing. Uh, and um, I was reading a blog post by a Lacanian writer recently who used, um, who summarized um, fantasy in a really, really succinct way and used this term even at the cost of one's life. So a subject will desire subjective stability even at the cost of their life. And this is how fantasy relates to death drive. And obviously death drive is interesting in this film because this woman's desire persists beyond death. She creates, she commits suicide um, in order to uh, make it look like a murder. Um, So the way this works in terms of fantasy or um, subjective stability, so fantasy is to do with um, a an aspiration for a reality that makes the dark, dialectical, ambivalent, difficult to digest, uh, apocalyptic nature, like necessarily apocalyptic nature of birth towards death of the human subject. We paper that over in a simple way with, um, with fantasy. And fantasy can relate to desires that we believe will solve all of that. And we can manage all of that difficult thing that I described by projecting ourselves forward. And this is what, you know, utopians and reactionaries have in common, that the reactionary conservative will look to a utopia of the past. They believe that they can, um, obviously, when the past isn't actually truly experienced, you can imagine it was better than it was. You, um, you invest in, so you try to recreate in society to be able to manage the difficult present with the promise of the future, or you are, uh, I would say, equally right-wing, but a reactionary utopian who who does the same in terms of a future that, that never comes. Um, uh, and this allows us to manage reality. And often depression occurs when that fantasy um, is broken up or reality challenges that fantasy. And uh, it cha- challenges essentially the narrative that we have constructed for ourselves. So we manage, we protect it. This is, you know, language is so important in psychoanalysis. In fact, all subjectivity is, is la- linguistic in its own way. Even non-speaking people have, uh, are overwritten by, by language. Just the act of speaking isn't just the only thing that makes you speak um, or makes you overwritten by speech. But the... Um, so, so fantasy is to do with a narrative around language and a chain of signifiers. And when that fantasy is challenged enough, the chain of signifiers effectively breaks and we're exposed to the real. So this dark, di- indigestible, or it is digestible, but difficult to digest uh, apocalyptic nature of reality. And we must either confront that reality and digest it to create a, um, a basis on which to build a reasonable life. I think that's a very political point that Marx makes in um, the introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right. Um, by reinitting the signif- chain of signifiers, or you can reinvest in fantasy and you know the, the thing continues and maybe your depression will be even worse when that fantasy fails. But basically, this woman has um, a difficult relationship to, to, to fantasy. And um, she, I think, struggles to keep her desire going. So fantasy um, and desire are slightly different, but desire, which is a thing that emerges from lack. So desire emerges from lack in that the lack that marks subjectivity means that we have space to be able to go after something that we think will reasonably or unreasonably fulfill that lack. And desire basically is the driving force of life. And we are, um, so therefore to tie this back to the reactionary position in relation to fantasy, you don't want to really get rid of lack because if you get rid of lack, you're melancholic. Whilst you um, getting rid of your, or losing out on your fantasy exposes you to the real of desire, which is traumatic. Um, getting the fantasy also exposes you to the real of desire because that fantasy can never fulfill, can, doesn't have the transcendental ability to mitigate against the horror of existence and the necessarily horrific, traumatic 
nature of being born. So she has a sort of difficult relationship to desire, which may or may not be to do with her father figure who looms large and maybe his, the, the paternal function has had a, a strange function in her life or, or hasn't really instigated properly. But she um, seems to need to keep desire going by having the threat of some of her husband being taken away. So she, this is a sort of a very jealous approach. Um, so you sometimes see this where people deal with the anxiety of their desire or try to get their desire to keep going when they um, have to imagine that somebody's there to take their object of desire away. And I think she sort of keeps doing this um, by creating these scenarios where she's jealous of somebody taking the attention away from her partner. Um, but an interesting way, I think, that just to, to call back to this idea that fantasy offers subjective stability, even at the cost of one's life. Um, it's an example of how maybe we can call her a, re a, a, a desire, a, I don't know, a desirous reactionary, <laughs> a fantastical reactionary, I don't know. She is so unable to um, come to terms with the true nature of her desire and so is so um, fulfilled in a toxicity of uh, a misrecognition of how her desire functions and a... Um, you know, it's interesting because she she's potentially trying to keep her desire going with this with this sort of structure, but she is invested. The fantasy comes out in it in that if only she were able to, through this um, self sabotage, play on her desire, achieve her goal of eliminating everybody, then she would feel whole and complete. So that's it. I don't know if that that makes clear the difference between fantasy and, and desire. So she's trying to keep the desire going by playing this self sabotage game of jealousy. But the fantasy relates to how she relates to that, that desire itself. So she would rather die <laughs> than um, confront the true nature of her desire, than, than reach a sort of like potentially um, psychoanalytic cure. There's a question over whether certain structures like perversion um, can deal with the real of their desire and that, that perversion may be a defense against psychosis. That's not like a universally held position. I know like one or two people maybe have that position, but Lacan says in one of his seminars that there is latent hysteria in all subjects, which means that every subject, regardless of structure, psychosis, neurosis, whatever, has the capacity to have a distance, a philosophical distance to their desire and potentially to enter into a psychoanalytic cure that way. So in a sense, she has failed to do this and uh, she sustains her fantasy of um, destroying those of whom she is jealous in the real world through her death. So she would rather die than give up on the toxicity of her fantasy, which I think is really a lesson for us all <laughs> and also does apply to, to politics because, um, you know, uh, and yet, you know, Marx was writing nearly 200 years ago um, the material insights are there. You can expose people to reality, to how the market functions. And in a sense, I do think that um, psychoanalysis gets people to digest. It's, it's political insofar as it gets people to confront the nature of their desire. And obviously, um, capitalism is an emergent of the structure of desire of society and um, that our material conditions really are the horizon of our reality. But 200 years after Marx's writing, and I think that Marx is really engaging in thought rather than abstraction in the Hegelian sense, and that so many of our uh, sort of psychological symptoms are in this abstraction category to abstract us from our reality. So fantasy in its toxic form is abstracting us from our, the nature of our reality so that we can build a more reasonable, better life. Um, so 200 years after this great thought to expose us to the, the real of our economy, still... We are engaged in death drive of capitalism. It nevertheless, nevertheless, she persisted, etc. So um, there we have it. But I think that the film is a very good example of death drive in action. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. Yeah, very nice. Thank you for both of your readings. I should note that this was a suggestion made by one of our regular. Um, loyal, wonderful listeners um, who uses the uh, the name Doormaker um, on our Patreon, and uh, this was a comment left by 
um, him or her, uh, a suggestion for all of us, um, but particularly with the presence of Helen requested. So this is why <laughs> I mentioned it uh, when we we you know were fortunate enough to have Helen uh, come back. So so just on a, a technical note, the the film was actually released on this very day, on the twentieth of December. So we've 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 somehow managed some kind of historical synchronicity in nineteen forty three. So almost uh, eighty years ago assuming my maths makes any sense but yeah so it's um yes i agree with the the the, the points made about genre that you know it's a noir but it's in technicolor it's both a romance and a kind of psychological drama and a courtroom drama um it was at the time um by all accounts enormously successful at the box office level it was like the highest grossing film for that decade um for 20th century fox it was really quite um i don't know appreciated uh, it got a lot of great reviews uh, great openings in the major cities kind of interesting to wonder why it it did quite have that success maybe um you know because it maybe because of its mixture maybe because of the color maybe because I mean, let's let's also note, and let's be clear that, as I always say, let me be clear. Jean Tierney is a very beautiful woman. I mean, she is extraordinarily beautiful. So the the main character, as well as her adopted sister, I mean, Jean Tierney is is uh, routinely voted one of the most beautiful women who ever lived. And perhaps from our perspective, she looks kind of dated, right? As a, as a form of beauty, right? She has a beauty that's very associated with older films, even with black and white films, actually. Um, but it's very, she's extremely striking. She has incredible eyes, uh, which are deployed to great use in the opening scene in the train carriage when she stares in a very discomforting manner, actually, which sets up um, the whole scenario for this idea of possession. You know, it's like literally the moment she sets eyes on him, he's her prey. Um, whether, you know, because he resembles her father. And, and that's what she says to justify her staring, which obviously makes him very uncomfortable initially. Um, and I've had encounters with people who are unpleasant in this way and they will stare at you. And uh, staring at people is a, is a, is a warning sign <laughs> or something. But all of that said, um, you know, I, I actually appreciated um both of your readings of her, Benjamin's reading of her as as actually somebody undergoing grief who is not actually being given any advice or good advice, let alone good advice, um, because she's a complicated monster. She is a monster. Um, she reminds me actually of the male character in Gaslight, which is a film, the 1940 version, which we covered a while back. But then a monster is not necessarily someone or something that you can't feel pity for. You know, a monster is not straightforwardly hateable, right, in, in some obvious way. I mean, maybe the guy in Gaslight is more obviously a villain because we know that he's after her jewels, right? So he has motive in some base, you know, sort of materialistic way. Her motive, as Helen, I think, beautifully outlined, is, you know, it goes beyond death. You know, it's kind of incomprehensible from any... Um, um, how, how to put it, utilitarian standpoint. Like it doesn't make sense. You know, her, she's not only extraordinarily beautiful and desirable and men want her and she is loved and she appears to have a loving family and lots of money. So so in a sense, she has everything, like literally, like the, 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 the modern subject could possibly want. Um, you know, she has all these beautiful clothes. She's, you know, she's very thin. She can sort of do whatever she wants. Like, but, but, but that's what's interesting about it, isn't it? It's precisely perhaps because she is this person that she is clinging on in this deranged, possessive way to this um, this absence, not only the absence of her father, but also this kind of the inability of anything to kind of to to solve her, you know, well, not 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 to solve her problems, but to um, I don't know, yes, to 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 persist actually over time, and that's why the fancy has to be regenerated, and you know, it's it's it reminds me of a couple of things. One of which would be Zizek's, uh, I guess, paraphrase of Lacan when he's talking about the the jealous husband. It's like if you're pathologically jealous, even if your wife is having an affair, your jealousy is still pathological, right? So that there's something pathological about the jealousy itself, regardless of whether that her husband ultimately does find her adopted sister more palatable or, or, or likable. And there's an interesting discussion in the film about the difference between 
loving someone and liking them. And this woman seems very good at getting men to fall in love with her, but they don't like her because she isn't a very likable person and she she knows it. And there's something kind of very, very sad about that. And, you know, she says maybe she can't confront her desire fully, but she does say things like sometimes the truth is wicked. You know, when she describes not wanting to persist in the pregnancy. I mean, of course, her actions are, are <laughs> deplorable. She she allows the boy to drown. She 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 kind of uh, you know creates her own um, miscarriage, and and you know she's you know sets her sets her her adopted sister up um, after death. Uh, you know, in that sense, she's she's sort of a straightforward monster. And and I was thinking in today's terms, how she would be described. And I think Helen already mentioned the idea of kind of borderline. And, you know, I've met at least a couple of people who've had the diagnosis properly done. And I guess the phrase that's usually associated with people, you know, with this diagnosis is is something like, um, I hate you, don't leave me. You know, this absolute paradox of um, pushing people away, but then also desperately needing them to love you. And this kind of absence of a feeling of self, right, outside of a recognition which is impossible, so that your own sense of self cannot be sustained by anyone else. And because of the the lack on the part of the other, you, you end up kind of hating the other, but also needing them desperately at the same time. And it's a very, it's an awful um, social and familial um, situation like it's really really bad like I you know when you see people in the, with this level of distress um, because they cannot let's say have a persistent sense of self over time because there's nothing that will reflect back to them um, their own self because in a way their own self is is absent somehow or it's not uh, it doesn't persist you know uh, and this is, um, you know, reflected, I think, when Ellen, for example, can't be alone. She's annoyed. She's she's even jealous of the typewriter, if you see what I mean. You know, it's 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 not just people. It's not just the presence of this or that person, although it's also that. But it's it's the simple reality that she cannot be sufficient for anybody because nobody can be the other person, right, in that kind of fusion way. You can never um, be enough, right? And this is like, in a way, you come to terms with that. <laughs> I think like, this is one of the things you have to come to terms with that, you know, even if you're the most romantic person in the world, the other person, however much you love them, has to have a pragmatic dimension, which is to say you have to accept that this person um you know, there is a compromise, right, with your own desire and with theirs. And it can be a very amicable compromise. It can be a very beautiful compromise, right? But the other person cannot fuse with you and you can't fuse with them, right? This And this seems to be the longing that she has for her, for her dead father. And at one point, the mother says, well, you kind of killed him too. You know, your possessive desire put paid to him, you know, so there's something kind of relentless and murderous in that longing, um, which is absolutely um, tragic. Um, I've met a woman who was going out with a friend of mine. Fortunately, they broke up, but she exhibited um, these kinds of jealous symptoms to an extraordinary degree. Like she basically cut him off from all of his friends. She cut him off from his family. Um, as you know, she started becoming jealous of his sister. Um, you know, she wouldn't allow him just to have conversations with other people or she would have to vet the other people and they could only be other men, um, not women, you know, it, it, but at the same time, she acted in a way that was like profoundly flirtatious and seductive to other men. Right. So this absolutely paradoxical, uh, kind of behavior, but, but it sort of makes sense if what you're trying to affirm is your, absolute singular necessity to a person and you're saying no one else can replace me and also you must love me despite my appalling behavior because the singularity of your love is such that you know it must be eternal no matter what I do even if I do absolutely terrible things so it raises this kind of question also of a sort of social etiquette in the film which I think is very interesting it's like how how should people behave to one another like for example in the family situations there is a kind of politesse and it's comprehensible and it's also but it's also now very dated and people don't speak to each other in this polite way 
anymore. They might speak to each other in new polite ways, right? But I think we have maybe fewer boundaries or fewer barriers between, let's say, displays of really excessive behavior or situations like the one I described with my friend, which fortunately he was able to get out of, um, where pathological behavior is seen as not necessarily something that anyone can intervene in because it's like your private business, you know? And so even if it's your friend and even if you think, oh, well, if this was a man doing this to a woman, we would have no hesitation in calling this an abusive relationship, right? You know, it's all of the clear signs like cutting them off from friends and family, controlling their time, monitoring where they go, you know, you know what I mean? Like this is a controlling, jealous person. Um, and there was something very strange about the fact that people couldn't, you know, quite see that mirror um, image in that situation. So, yeah, I think it was a very, a very interesting film. It, it, it's not as psychologically rich as maybe Hitchcock or some of later films or, contempt, or, you know, some of the films that, that, that really get into it later on, especially in the relationship between men and women. But I think it's... Um, yeah, in its very blurriness, blurring of the genres and the pathos that you feel, nevertheless, for this kind of monstrous but extremely beautiful and extremely damaged woman, um, there is something kind of very sentimental in the, in the, in the purest sense of that word um, going on here. It's interesting you're saying about like the crime of staring, right? If, if anyone's been on the tube late, lately in London... With posters everywhere, although they've been there for a few years, being like it's a basically sort of criminalizing staring. And it's true that, like, that if, if it is actually legitimately, you know, a sort of perverse type of stare, that's not great. But it's also this sort of like um, policing of interpersonal. Uh, normal interpersonal interactions, what constitutes staring? I'm sure I do that. I'm quite a nosy person and I probably stare all the time. No, you're quite right, actually. I mean, because I, I agree with you. I find those posters and, you know, just like the injunction to be kind, you know, those posters we had during COVID, which mm -hmm. drove me mad. You know, yes, I see those posters, you know, don't stare. Is someone, you know, looking at you inappropriately? Is this, you know, uh, as I, I find that abhorrent, right? Precisely for the reasons you, you outlined, you know, like what on earth is the state doing or the, you know, telling policing interpersonal behavior and, and saying this is how you should act or not act. I agree with that. But, you know, on the other hand, I definitely have been stared at in that way in a social situation, not not by a stranger, but by someone I didn't know very well, if you saw what I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but who, defi who definitely then went on to kind of stalk me. And God. so I'm very, I'm very like, but, but that's not the, the gaze of the stranger. And yeah. obviously in some countries, it's very different. Some countries you go to and people stare at you like a lot mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily invasive or they sit really close to you or like, I think like Greece or other, you know, there, there's a different interpersonal space and Britain obviously has, it. everything is sort of tacit, you know, but that's why the posters are obscene because those sorts of things are tacit, right? Mm-hmm. But it is, we're talking about, you know, like obviously we've, we've covered the ground of council culture a million times, but it's another sort of um, panopticon sense of, of um, it's, it's, where, it's where the sort of society has become maternal rather than paternal um, in, that, in its super egoic nature, right? So the super ego is potentially the voice of the mother, not the father, which I think Maybe there's this sort of um, cultural understanding that the superego is the father, but I, I think actually in a psychoanalytic sense, it's more the mother, but um, this sense of being on your best behavior. And also I think that this, maybe this moment's passed, but during the epoch of everybody calling everybody a Nazi, it wasn't necessarily like just the, the, the way it sort of operates in terms of how a neurotic person responds to that. It's not only the fear of, the material fear of like, oh shit, I've got to be on my best behavior because I don't want to lose my job, which of course I think is one order effect of it, intentional or not. But the other thing is to start to believe oneself to be a bad person. Um, so it's not only like, I'm a good person who could be misunderstood by society. It's like, hang on, am I that? Are my, um, let's say somebody might be a normal person who is like a classical liberal and a sort of... Um, 
sense that was accepted in the 90s. And hang on, does that mean in an abstract sort of way, A equals A equals A equals A equals A, sort of repeating the signifier from one um, location of fascist is the actions of the Nazis and abstracting that to something else. And suddenly you, you start to think, am I a bad person? Um, and I think that those things, and again, this be kind, choose love, all this kind of stuff, um, in a sense, this is such a nice signifier and it makes, you know, it, it, it maybe consciously evokes like being nice to each other, but it actually sort of alienates people and self-polices people and makes people feel bad in relation to that signifier of like, I've got to be good. So, um, yeah, I think it has actually the divisive sense in a sense of not that you start to distrust the other, but you start to distrust yourself. And it's through that distrust of the self that you start to fear the other, which, yeah. Is kind of very toxic, really. Yeah, can I just jump in that quickly before Benjamin comes back? Because the, the one note I forgot to, <laughs> to read out was, is precisely on this point of the society without the father. So there's this great book for, by Alexander Michalich, who's a um, sort of psychologist who in 1963 published this book, which I've referenced quite a few times in my, my own writing. You know, where, where, yeah, society without the father, where he precisely diagnoses the collapse of the paternal function, which he also traces politically, as Benjamin did too, to the, um, let's say, the post war end or suspicion of the father figure in the shape of the Fuhrer or the great leader or the great man, and says that in a way, this, this, this period is, this is over, right? Like, and that actually what you have is the Absolutely. collapse. Absolutely. You know, you have the total collapse of the paternal function, um, not not straightforwardly into the maternal function, although I do agree with you, Helen, that actually the, the, the public sphere is now completely feminized and, and, and longhoused, as the dissident right might say in many ways, right? So that the concerns become those typically associated with femininity, like not offending other people, being nice, safety, you know, these kinds of things. So basically, these are the, now the functions of the state. Uh, what as well does as the long economy. house mean, by the way? Oh, gosh, I, I shouldn't have mentioned that. So it's, it's a rather, I suppose, it's a rather historic... Okay, so the long house is typically in, in like Native American culture and other, I think maybe in some Scandinavian countries, uh, a long communal house, which right. was sort of governed by um, like a female figure. So it's the idea of a kind of communal matriarchy, oh, basically, but you yeah. keep everyone in the same house. So it's a, But what they do in the critique of it, so there's this guy Lomez, it's a kind of pseudonym, and BAP and all of these distant right people, they use this term, or they were using it um, in the last six months or whatever, to describe the this sort of structure as they regard it very negatively of a kind of matriarchal or neo-matriarchal society in which it's actually women who dominate, whether whether symbolically or otherwise, right? So we could have a psychoanalytic reading. Um, so that, that certain female values like safety, so not risk, not adventure, not violence, you know, all of those things are basically completely converted into um, a, a state which is, yeah, precisely be nice, be kind. But why um, does why does a critique of, let's say, a mater, let's for example, this question of like psychoanalytically, like let's say, a maternal function, why is that associated with the dissident right? You, do you know what I mean? It's just weird how it's funny how I, I guess I'm just touching on it in terms of maybe this is a symptom of this self policing maternal function, if it is one type thing of this like. If you say this, this means, again, because I think the great crime of today is abstraction rather than thought. And I think capitalism is a, is a great mystification machine. So it's, it's, to, it's to blur the contours of our reality and the material nature of our, like the horizon of our life, which is material conditions. And all of this stuff, like, so it's funny that, let's say, so just because somebody says it, right? It becomes A equals A, abstract from like, let's say it's a comment about reality, which could come from any voice or any position. It's a right wing thing. So, you know, like we were talking about that article in the in these times, where it's, I think that's, that this is the great, the crime of capitalism. And I think what means, what is the disemancipation and I would say a right wing turn. <laughs> Again, this is me calling things right wing. Is this is abstraction rather than thought? So it's just interesting that it's like, why 
why is it associated? Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I don't know. I'd never, I'd heard this term longhouse, but I don't know what it means. But like, it's just interesting that these things, and then in, in myself, I'm suddenly like, oh, I have to defend this because like, that means that I might come across as somebody who is saying something the same as this, but it's like, will two people take breaths? Does that mean that well, two people are like is, the same category of person? You know? If something is true, it's true regardless of who says it. Let's, let's yeah. also be clear. Benjamin, oh, we're longhousing well, I just wanted to, to come back to this issue of the staring. I do not think that he's at all bothered by her staring. What her staring does, it violates the norms, but in a way that encourages him and allows him to then violate the norms by being forward with her in conversation. He's totally attracted to her. He is pleased that she would stare at him. He feigns being offended by it to give himself the upper hand as he goes forward in the in the courting. She is not a monster until she doesn't save the drowning boy. Up until that point, she <laughs> the film is totally sympathetic to her point of view. It's only when she doesn't save the drowning boy, when she handles that situation in that way, that the film takes a turn in its tone and, and how it portrays her, I think. Uh, I read her as, as the protagonist and the main character up until the point at which she drowns the boy. And then there's a flip and she becomes the antagonist because this film can't continue to treat someone who does something like that. It's 1945. You can't treat someone who does something like that as a sympathetic person past that point. So after that point, she's treated as just a, a completely antagonistic character and very, very bad and very evil and malicious. And then it's supposed that maybe she's always been bad and she's bad and evil to her core. But all of this has to happen because of the drowning boy thing. And up until that point, I think the film is a much better film. Once he drowns, the film has to become very black and white about who's good, who's bad, who's evil, who's not evil. And then the, its treatment of her becomes very two-dimensional and, and I think much less interesting. But prior to that point, I think that she's entirely justified in feeling like, you know, it's not a great thing to have to constantly take care of your husband's disabled brother while he works. That's not. But but as you said, materially speaking, she could get help with that. It's she doesn't want yes. to. She thinks, yeah, she doesn't want to. But on another level, she you know certainly does want help. But the help that she wants takes the form of not bringing someone else into the house, but sending him somewhere else. She's happy to use resources to send him to a school, to send him somewhere where he can get proper care, to send him to stay with family members. She is perfectly willing to handle this in a way which involves using resources to take care of him and getting help. She just doesn't want that help in the house. Now, I think it's perfectly reasonable for a married couple to not want other people in their house, for a, a person to say, hang on a second, I don't want your brother in the house with us. Hang on a second, I don't want a bunch of people coming in and out of the house to take care of your, your brother. Why does this have to happen in our house? Why can't this happen somewhere else? And it's only because he will not entertain any of that, any of it, that she gets into the situation where she's so desperate that she thinks, well, maybe I'll just let him drown. Counterpoint. I do think the staring is wildly inappropriate. Perhaps it was because it happened to me and perhaps because the the sexes were reversed. But men men who you vaguely know who stare at you like that are like not good news. Uh, secondly, her family make very dark insinuations about her character prior to any of the the murderous actions. They imply that basically she's she'll always win. She'll always want to win. She'll always basically get her own way. They do imply that her relationship with her father was like a bit dark. The the sister who's adopted says that she was adopted by the mother, but not by the father, as if basically to admit that there is a kind of complete imbalance there. And she also, Ellen also speaks to the doctor in a way that's kind of creepy when she's trying to get this, the brother out of the house. And then she pretends that she hasn't. So she, she actually is disingenuous multiple times, as well as deeply ambitious and kind of inappropriate. Like Yeah, but you could say a lot of those things about <laughs> Michael Jordan. 
Okay. And she is a lot like Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan doesn't have enough desire, so he has to invent things, slights from people. He has to say that people are slighting him, that they're competing with him, that they're trying to take something from him. And that's what drives him ultimately to uh, you know, struggle to beat people who are totally inferior to him and pose no real threat to him. And it's because he thinks in this way that he becomes Michael Jordan. It's because he's willing to attribute to other people slights that don't actually come from them and to just invent narratives about how people have disrespected him, that he's able to push himself to the level which he ultimately achieves. He has a kind of pathological competitiveness, but it doesn't in and of itself make him a bad person or a, an abusive figure. Uh, and he also was someone who was quite close to his father and had a very, very uh, tight relationship, was constantly trying to impress his father, uh, you know, even going so far as to retire from basketball, the sport he's actually good at, to play baseball after his father dies in an attempt in some way to uh, impress his father from beyond the grave by playing the, the sport that his father loved the most. Wow. Uh, that is a weird and strange kind of behavior, but that doesn't make him an... Uh, abusive person or an evil person. And I think in the same way, this character, yeah, people said, oh, she's very competitive and she's you know, difficult in all these different ways, but she hadn't done anything truly evil or wicked. Nobody attributes to her any truly evil, wicked, malicious behavior until the brother dies. That's the moment where she crosses a line. The mother the mother implies that, that her, her obsessive possessive nature contributed to her father's death. She implies that, but maybe that's her own attitude because she's jealous <laughs> about the love that the father had for the daughter. We don't know. We don't see all of that. That's true. But we're invited to take their perspective at later stages in the film by the things that she subsequently goes on to do. But it's not as if this is a character who was always already fated to do all of these things. This is a character who gets driven into this. And we see her get driven into it over the course of the film by the behavior of the people around her. I mean, these people in the family, if they think she's so dangerous and so bad, why don't they warn the husband before she marries him? They don't warn him. They're congratulating him when she informs them that they're all getting married. They're completely, you know, blithely indifferent to it. They act like it's a totally harmless thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it is good. Is, but it's sometimes, yeah, I mean, I'm very bad as like, I'm the last person to suspend my disbelief in like a really annoying way. And if anybody watches a movie with me, I'll be like, oh, um, maybe it's because like, yeah, from the maker's perspective or whatever. But, um, but you're right. I mean, maybe that's just something that they, um, that was an, a, a little ellipse in their, um, in their, uh, writing they really should have warned him if he was if she was such a toxic person for from the start they should be like although people have an interesting you know illogical way of relating to their loved ones where they um have blind spots and also can always hope for the best you know always hope that things are going to change and uh, things that are actually a historical pattern are, are somehow resolvable um mostly because our, our, our entire subjectivity is intersubjective. So sometimes we don't want to, even though we can have like a very semi-conscious visceral anger about those who are around us, we still, maybe because we know that they have had such an impact upon us and they could have a better impact upon us, not only in a material way, but in a sort of intersubjective way, if they were better. So sometimes we hope for the best. I think we do it with our parents all the time, you know, this idea that, even at X age, things aren't really the way they are and aren't a pattern that is never going to resolve. <laughs> yeah, that's especially delusional because as people age, they tend to become more extreme and worse versions of themselves, not better. Yeah, I think probably because I'm, I'm older than you guys by quite a long way and uh, I just accept that my parents are exactly who they are. And they're just these people. And I mean, fortunately, I, I'm lucky to have nice parents, right? So they're de they're gen genuinely very civil and, and, you know, conscientious people. But um, I do I do now simply think that there is literally nothing I can do to change my relationship with my parents or them beyond changing how I feel about them 
or beyond practical help or something like that. Like there's no, you know, nothing will ever really change. Is is how I think of it. But it's not necessarily bad. Yeah, it's, it's always um, yeah, it's always a multiplicity, and one wouldn't be oneself without one's uh, intersubjectivity with one's parents, which is such like a weird thing. But again, yeah, it's interesting how. It's it's the material choices that it's like it's, it's subjectivity is a weird thing because obviously it's related to the gaze of the other and the other's lack. So it is sort of immaterial in the sense that it's to do with lack. But lack is obviously the premise of matter itself and the premise of the Big Bang. But like, it's the the material choices that are actually the thing that lead to the formation of the other subjectivity, as well as the sort of the notion of gaze and stuff. Yeah. I don't think she's so bad. <laughs> it's interesting. I this she reminds me a lot of like um competitive girls at school. You know like the girls, I don't know, when you're a teenager the sort of like sort of semi-bullies that you also feel sorry for because they probably have real issues with their mental health but also have made your life kind of a misery. But it is to do, and I, it's interesting what you were saying about Michael Jordan, because it does relate to sort of competitiveness, competitiveness and scarcity mentality, this idea mm. that your objective desire is going to be taken away and having to be like the only person who has it. So definitely it relates to competitiveness. And so I wonder if there is something slightly borderline, quote unquote, about that teenage girl bullying competitiveness type thing but as I say I remember sort of some of these figures and you felt very sorry for them yeah I mean I think maybe well, Michael Jordan is very much the only one who has it yeah right. exactly so you can see how materially he has come to the necessity to sustain his desire to sort of like is winning because it's actually quite an interesting and ingenious obviously it's an unconscious trait that like a lot of people who have everything are just melancholic you know but he gets himself going. That's well, quite good. It continues even now in his propaganda campaign to undermine LeBron James in every subtle, passive-aggressive way that he can through his you know, documentaries and everything that <laughs> oh my God. he makes. His, you know, his constant effort to ensure that uh, he's not... By the way, if you ever ask Michael Jordan if he's the greatest basketball player of all time, he'll always say... I don't know who the greatest basketball player of all time is because I didn't have the opportunity to play against people from the 60s. Mm -hmm. That's what he'll always say if you ask him. And yet also he will do everything possible in his power to perpetuate his legendarium. Uh, part of how he perpetuates it is by, is by answering that way. Because if he were to answer that he is the greatest, that would suggest he needs to say it himself. And Michael Jordan wants it to be the case that he doesn't need to say it himself. Mm -hmm. mm. But it, it would also be the problem of completion, right? Like you're saying, so like even after death. So what's it called? There's a syndrome called like paradise syndrome where, or whatever, like where people have everything they need. It's like a materialist thing. So like, I don't know. Do you remember the Beanie Baby mm -hmm. craze? I had so a lot like, of Beanie Babies. A girl in my you? class's dad had a toy <laughs> shop. So we were like, we'd get them at cost price. Had all of them, had loads. <laughs> I had like a three really ugly ones. I had like a man drill that had like a really ugly man. butt <laughs> and then like a bat or something. Anyway, I had like the goth Beanie Babies. I only had like two or three. Um, but <laughs> but there's this, there is this like if episode of like Inside Number Nine, which is about this collector problem mm -hmm. because it's like if, and it was about Beanie. So it's like if you collect every single iteration of the thing, yeah. like when it's over, you're just profoundly sad. And in the in this um, in this show, the guy throws them all away and starts again because he can't imagine a life where he's actually gotten what he wants. Right? Yeah. No. Um, Tom McGowan has interesting stuff about the difference between a lover and a miser, somebody who loves something and who it miserly, you know, keeps it going because love is appreciating the depth dimension and the object. So. Love is giving what you did for Lacan. Although this is sort of, I don't know if Lacan actually did say it. Although, yeah. Um, it's giving what you don't have to somebody who doesn't want it. It's like you actually confront in love the person with the hole in their fantasy, in a sense, in love. And so you were actually taking something away and giving it. But anyway, um, that's a whole other thing to get into. And I don't think I really explained myself very well there. So that's a little... 
hole for you to question, poke into. I don't know. <laughs> but I realised like yes, uh, at that point it. was really really shit shitly made, and I can't be bothered to go into it. And I also can't because I realised I like made it really well to somebody the other day, and I just didn't make it at all there. But anyway, never mind. Oh, that's awful <laughs> when you, you make a point really well in one setting, and then you try to recapture the magic of it. You just it can't doesn't quite no. come off. But you know, we are going to do a B side, and perhaps in the course of the B side, we will actually get the thing that we want, and once we have it, we'll feel whole and complete. Who knows? Who knows? It's possible. It is possible. There's always a chance. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.